Good morning, Crossroads. How are we this morning? Excited to be here with you guys. What would Jesus do? How many of you guys remember the 1990s? Anybody remember the 1990s? Anybody remember that image right there? WWJD. I looked up the, the origins of WWJD. Believe it or not, it didn't start in the 1990s. In the 1890s, there was a man named Charles Spurgeon who preached a message, and in the message, he kept repeating the phrase, what would Jesus do? And it became a craze all through the United States in the 1890s. I didn't know that until I looked it up. But then, of course, it kind of faded away, and there were a couple world wars that took place. There was a lot of mess in the world. And then in the 1990s, in a church in Michigan, there was a youth minister who resurrected this phrase and actually developed these bracelets, and all of a sudden it spread throughout the United States again, and there was this massive marketing campaign, if you will. What would Jesus do? Is it something good to ask, what would Jesus do? Certainly it is, right? Certainly it is. And yet, I'm here to challenge us this morning because I believe God's word challenges us that we can't possibly begin to speculate as to what would Jesus do unless we first have these bracelets. Hold on, have these bracelets. WDJD. Hmm. These aren't as popular, by the way. You can find them online, but it's very hard to find. But this is what my message title this morning is, and that is, What Did Jesus Do? What did Jesus do? Because how can we know what would Jesus do without first taking a look in his word and examining what did he do? Who was Jesus and what did he do? And and what example did did he leave for us to follow? Amen? Amen? Amen. Last week... Um, I kind of cut my sermon off short because I ran out of time, to be honest. But I knew I'd be back up here again today and be with you guys to be able to pick up where we left off in God's Word. And so I just wanted to remind us of what we looked at last week. Last week we were challenged that as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, as, as men and women and young people, boys and girls, following after Jesus, we are to do three things. Practice love. You remember? Pursue peace. And picture hope. Those are three things that we are challenged with in the book of 1 Peter. We are to be people, men and women, who are practicing love each and every day. No matter who our audience is, whether it's our best friend, our spouse, our family, or even our enemy. We're to be practicing love. And we are certainly to be pursuing peace, reconciliation, peace between one another, and peace between ourselves and God through Jesus Christ. We are to be proclaiming that peace, advocating for that peace, pursuing that peace. And certainly, in order to do those things, we need to be picturing hope. Do we not? And those things are challenged in those of us who want to follow after Jesus. Those things were things we looked at. And if you think about it, that's exactly what Jesus was committed to doing, was he not? Did he not practice love? Did he not pursue reconciliation and peace? Did he not provide us a picture of hope? He certainly did. Let's open the word this morning. We're going to read our text, 
together. Starting at 1 Peter, where we picked up last week, verse, chapter 3, verse 18 is where we're going to begin. And we're going to go all the way to chapter 4, verse 6 this morning. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. After being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. In that state, he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah, while an ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that he has gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, equip yourselves also with the same resolve, because the one who suffered in the flesh has finished with sin in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the pagans choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. So they are surprised that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged by men in the fleshly realm, they might live by God in the spiritual realm. The word of the Lord to us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you, God, for who you are, and God, all that you've done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, as we think about it, as we are challenged this morning to follow after the example of Christ, God, help us to understand who he was and what he was committed to doing so that we might imitate him as dearly beloved children. God, it is your heart to communicate truth to us through your word this morning. I just pray that it might be clear. I pray that it might be powerful. I pray that it might pierce into our hearts and into our minds. God, convict of areas where we have not followed your son, Jesus. Encourage us to get on track. And God, whatever you do, don't, don't leave us the same as we walked in the doors. God, help us to go out with a new resolve, a new commitment to follow after you, your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray and give all glory this morning. Amen. Oh man, let's pick up number one. What did Jesus do that we're called to imitate? Number one, he suffered for righteousness. 
He suffered for righteousness. Listen to 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he, speaking of Jesus, might bring you to God. After being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. One of the greatest single verses in the Bible to tell us the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You guys probably all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a great verse that tells us the gospel. But let's not forget about 1 Peter 3.18. Because 1 Peter 3.18 is just as powerful. Listen to what it says. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. And he didn't just stay dead. No, it says that after being put to death in the fleshly realm, he was made alive in the spiritual realm. What is the gospel? The gospel is this. Jesus loves you. There's no doubt in my mind that Jesus loves every one of us because he left heaven to come to earth. Why? To suffer for sins. To pay the punishment that our sins deserve. What is sin? It's rebellion against God's holy nature and character, his law. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us have turned to our own way. For all have sinned and fallen short of the perfect glory of God. It's true. If you're honest with yourself, you can think about ways that you've sinned against God. You've chosen to rebel and go your own way. To reject his rightful authority and place in your life and decide, I want to do it this way. We've all been there. We've all done it. None of us are without guilt. As we stand before a holy God, we are all condemned already. But God, who is rich in mercy, did not leave us without an option for hope and restoration. Without an option for our sins to be covered, to be paid for, to be dealt with. Yes, under his righteous wrath that sin deserves. Sin needed to be punished. But he gave us an option where the sin was going to be punished in his son, Jesus. Wow, no greater love is this than a man lay down his life for his friend. Jesus considers us a friend. He laid down his life for us. It says in the Bible that he suffered for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus died for your sins, but not because he deserved death, but because our sins demanded that they be punished. Sin required the shedding of blood. Jesus shed his blood so that we wouldn't have to. That's love. That's grace. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus didn't stay dead. He overcame death. He rose from the grave. We don't have a Savior that's still in a tomb. We have a Savior who is in heaven who is seated at the right hand of the Father of majesty on high. And the Bible says that each one of us, by faith, if we believe in Jesus as being our Savior, as being the one who paid the penalty that our sins rightfully deserved, we ask him, Jesus, thank you. 
you be my savior. I surrender to you and your lordship in my life. The Bible says that our sins are covered under the blood of the lamb and we are reconciled to the father and we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's the hope, that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Because God loves us and he wants us to spend eternity with us. We were created for relationship with God. We are unique in all of creation, the Bible tells us. God didn't want to have relationship with the whales. As mighty as they are and as beautiful as they might be in the sea, he didn't create them in his own image and likeness. He didn't create them as the apple of his eye to have relationship with forever. No, he created mankind. He created us in his image and his likeness. We have the ability to choose freely of our will. We were given a will to either relate with God or to reject God. That is what we all stand with, is a, a decision to make regarding what Jesus has done for us. My question this morning as I begin is simply this. Have you received or have you rejected the love of Jesus Christ? Because no one else can do it for you. It's an act of your will. God respects your free will. God created us with it, and he's a respecter of freedom, of your will. He will allow you to choose to reject his son, Jesus. It will break his heart. He will pursue you in love the rest of your days until you face the grave. He will never give up says his heart, his passion is for the lost. He came to seek and save those who were lost. He wants your heart. Have you given it to him? Are you rejecting, are you stand in rejection of his love? The reality is it's appointed unto man once to die and then face judgment. Don't go to your grave without embracing Jesus Christ as your savior. He wants to reconcile you to the Father. He wants you to enjoy the blessing of new life that's found in Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, what a day to choose to embrace Jesus. I want to encourage you to do that. Talk to anyone who is up on the stage. We want to pray with you. We want to celebrate a new child that's come home. Amen? Amen. What did Jesus do? Number one, Jesus suffered for righteousness. Why? To reconcile people to God. We are, we are to have the same expectation. John 15, Jesus in the upper room, verse 20 says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will certainly persecute you. They will come after you. They will not be happy that you're choosing to follow Jesus. Is that a popular thing in our world to do and to say and to proclaim? No, it's almost opposed on every front and it's only growing worse. We have to be ready if we're gonna side with following Jesus that we might also have to suffer like our savior did for righteousness. Why though, why would we be committed to that? Because we wanna see people reconciled to God. That's our mission too. 
We need to have the same attitude and we need to have the same resolve. Let's be on mission to see people reconciled to God. Amen? Number two, he spoke the truth. 1 Peter 3.19, Jesus disarmed the darkness and brought deliverance to mankind. Listen to what it says. In that state, in what state? In the spiritual realm. Verse 18 says that he was made alive in the spiritual realm. In that state, he, speaking of Jesus, also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while an ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Who are these spirits that he's speaking about, and what is this proclamation that was made? Well, the word spirits in the Greek, almost every single time it's mentioned in Scripture, is always referring to angelic or powers, or spiritual realm creatures, not, men, not mankind. Almost without exception, there's one mention of that word in the book of Hebrews that does refer to mankind. But every other instance is referring to the spiritual beings, the powers. We know they exist. It's throughout Scripture. Let's take a little quick journey through this. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul tells the church, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We know that there are evil forces and evil beings. Yes, they were created by God, but they weren't created evil. They were created with a choice, though, just like we are. And those angelic beings in this other realm, this spiritual dimension, chose to rebel against God. Listen, 2 Peter, the second time Peter writes a letter to the church, he says these words, chapter 2, verse 4. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell. Literally, the word is Tartarus, which has to do with a dungeness place that exists in the bottom pit of hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. When did the angels sin, and what were their sin? That's a good question. We don't have time to explore it fully, but let me give you some passages if you want to write them down if you're taking notes. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. This is what Peter is actually referencing back to the days of Noah. There were spiritual beings that seemed to have freedom to roam the earth and to interact with mankind. And they didn't keep their proper place of authority. But they were rebelling against God and his agenda. Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and it says that they, um, God's spirit could not contend with what was taking place for long. He was, he was needing to wipe out what was happening. It was so evil. And so depraved. Jude, verse 6. We're going to read that in just a second. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. Talks about what happened with Satan and his rebellion. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. Ezekiel 28, 13 through 17. Also mentions this moment where Satan rebelled against God. 
Ezekiel 28, 13 through 17. And finally, Revelation 12, 1 through 9. Talks about a dragon that depicts Satan. It even says that Satan is the dragon in the image that John has. And it talks about what took place, Revelation 12, 1 through 9. But let me just read a couple, a couple things to give us an idea of what was taking place. Jude, verse 6, it says this, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, there's their sin. What was their position of authority? It was under God's authority. It was to serve God's agenda. And they decided, nope, we want to serve another agenda. We want to go against God's agenda. They did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. What was their proper dwelling? Heaven. They left heaven. They followed Satan in his rebellion against God. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, kind of mentions what's taking place here that Peter's describing. Listen to what it says. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and it says in Psalm chapter 68, verse 18, he's about to quote that. And the whole chapter of Psalm 68 is about someone who is a victorious, conquering king. And all that they get, the spoils of war. All the glory they get from their victory. And so right here, Paul quotes Psalm 68, and it says this, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so he might so that he might fill all things. What's this depicting? It's depicting this moment. Jesus died on the cross. What is death? It's a separation between the physical and the spiritual. When Jesus died on the cross, being God in the flesh, did he die as God? No. He was alive in the spirit. One day, a few days later, his spirit would reunite with that dead body and would be resurrected. From the dead. But in that interim, there's a few days there where his body laid in a tomb, but his spirit, as the Son of God, went down into the depths of hell, of Hades. And he made a proclamation. What do you think that proclamation was? It was likely, Satan, you no longer have any cause to hold these prisoners, these souls of mankind who had trusted ahead of time in the coming Messiah. They had placed their faith in the promised one of God. Even though they didn't see the cross, they had died from being Old Testament saints. And it says in the Bible that they went into Abraham's bosom, a place that was down in Sheol, the place of the grave in Hebrew. And there seemed to be a place in Sheol where there was Hades, the place of torment, and there was Abraham's bosom a place that was separated by a great chasm where, where they were comforted by God, but they were still held prisoner by Satan because he said, you have no right, God, to be reconciled with man. They're sinners. They stand condemned. You can't take them into heaven for yourself. 
And yet when Jesus defeated death, he paid the price for sin that sin demanded. He went down into that grave and said, you have no longer a cause to hold mankind hostage. They placed their faith in me, Jesus, and I have overcome. And so it says that he led a train of captives up into heaven where he ascended to the right hand of the Father. That's the picture here in Ephesians. That's the picture here that Peter is describing in 1 Peter. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says this, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. There's the reason that Satan held him prisoner. There was a law, and the law said, thou shalt not, and every one of them had done what God said not to do. Every one of them had sinned. There was a contract, if you will, that Satan was holding God to and said, you can't reconcile these people back to yourself. They're all sinners. But in Christ, that charge was canceled. That charge was declared not guilty because of the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. A public disgrace of their accusations and their horrid behavior. Everything you're trying to accomplish against God just got beat down because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And the church said, Hallelujah. Triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. What did Jesus do? WDJD? Number two, Jesus spoke the truth. He declared victory over sin and death. He declared that there is no longer cause to hold the people of God in the grave. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. We have been set free. Why? Because only the truth can set people free. Amen? Amen. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. As God's children, we are to bring light to the darkness. We are to bring truth to those being held captive by the lies and the tactics of the enemy. Embracing truth means embracing freedom. Number three, not only did he suffer for righteousness... Not only did he speak truth, but he sat victorious. He sat victorious. Listen to 1 Peter 3, 20 through 22. God patiently waited in the days of Noah while an ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Who were those eight people? Noah, his wife, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah, and their three wives. There were eight people that got on board that ark. It took 100 years to build an ark, a massive ship that represented the, the deliverance, the salvation of our God from destruction and from wrath. And only eight people responded in, by faith and said, I'll get on board. I'll get on board. God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water, 
Baptism, which, represent, which corresponds to this, which corresponds to this picture of being saved and the water that was involved, now saves you. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh. It's not the physical act of baptism, no. But the pledge of a good conscience towards God. Where does that good conscience come from? It comes by faith. It, faith in what? Faith in what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it says there in verse 21, without a risen Savior, what do we have faith in? What do we have hope for? Nothing. We would still be dead in our sins. But because Jesus rose from the dead, he overcame death and the grave. And he offers salvation to all who will trust in him. So baptism is a public declaration of our faith and trust in a living Savior. That's what baptism is. It's not that baptism saves you. It's baptism declares that you've been saved. Amen? Now, verse 22, that he has gone into heaven. He is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. When I sit down after a long day of work, what am I declaring? The work, yeah, I'm, I'm declaring that I'm tired, right? But I'm also declaring that the work is done, and now it's time to rest, relax, sit in victory over the fact that I got up that morning and went to work, earn some money for my family, right? We celebrate the small things in life. And when you sit down after accomplishing something great, it's a declaration that it's done, it's finished. The work is done. And Jesus sat down in victory. You know, the Bible says that if we're in Christ, we also can rest assured that we have the victory. Not because of anything we've done, but because what Christ has done on our behalf. We have the victory. And if we have the victory, we should be seated with God in a spiritual sense in the heavenlies. Rest assured that nothing can touch us on this earth that God doesn't want to allow into our lives. We have victory over death and the grave. We don't have anything to fear. We can live empowered lives for the Son of Jesus, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's the way his people, his disciples should be living. Amen? What did Jesus do? He sat victorious. Why? Because the devil's power and authority was defeated. He had no more hold on the grave. He had no more condemnation for those that were in Christ. He had nothing left. It's in that that we can stand victorious. Because Jesus is victorious as God's children, so are we. Therefore, there is nothing we should fear. The devil has no power over us because of what Christ has done. Listen to Romans 8, 37. We are more than conquerors through him. More than conquerors. Do you live as a conqueror? Or do you live as a conquered? We need to live in Christ. We are more than conquerors. 
So we live like citizens of heaven because that's what we actually are. That's what we actually are. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, equip yourselves also with the same resolve. Because the one who suffered in the flesh has finished with sin in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. Number four, what did Jesus do? What WDJD? He surrendered to God's will. Surrendered to God's will wholeheartedly, 100%. In the garden, he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Who was he praying to? He was praying to the Father. Jesus has a dedicated desire to bring his Father joy. A dedicated desire to bring his Father joy. Galatians chapter 2.20, Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ, he lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. Romans 6.6, Paul also writes these words, For we know that the old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished. We don't have to no longer worry about sin being in control so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin's claim. I believe that's what Peter's describing here. Someone who has died, someone who has suffered, is no longer worried about sin. You know, the picture here is that Jesus suffered in the flesh, that Jesus was finished with sin. And all of us need to be ready to be finished with sin as well and be ready to face suffering. When you're in the midst of suffering for righteousness, sin is not on your agenda. Everything is focused on Jesus Christ. I think about the martyr Stephen. It says that when he was being stoned, he looked up. His focus was drawn upward. He wasn't thinking about, how can I sin right now? He was being martyred for his faith, his testimony. And he looked up into the heavens. His his focus was single-minded. And it says that heaven was open before him. And he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Is Jesus standing for your testimony, for your life? I want my Savior to, to leave his seated position and take a stand. Wow, what an honor Stephen received from his Savior. He stood and applauded for Stephen's testimony, for Stephen's faith. Are we living those kinds of lives, church? I want to be. I encourage us to be. Number four, what did Jesus do? He suffered, he surrendered to God's will. Why? Because he knew God's will was the best for everyone, and he was dedicated to living it out. We must follow Jesus' example of always seeking and obeying the will of God in this life. This is how we live thankful and worshipful lives towards the one who has saved us. Do you realize that when you obey and surrender to God's will, you're saying thank you for the cross? You're worshiping the Savior. It's not a matter of earning salvation. You already received salvation because of God's finished work through Jesus on the cross and your faith in that. 
So why do we do good works? Why do we do what God wants us to do from that day forward? Because we want to say thank you. Because we're a thankful church. Because we're a worshipful church. Amen? And we know that his will is best for everyone involved. We do this through knowing and obeying his word. And by yielding to and depending on the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Verse 3 of chapter 4. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the pagans choose to do. Carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. So they are surprised that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of wild living. And because you're too good for their activities, and they don't like the feeling that you give them when you say, no thank you. I'm not going to go in that direction and, and partake in the things that you're partaking. It makes them feel guilty. And they don't like to feel guilty. The darkness doesn't like the light. Do you know what I mean? So should we just be like, oh, let's not be a light. Let's just let them be their darkness. And, and you know, no. God wants us to be a light. It says that because of all that, they slander you. No one likes to feel the way that light makes them feel when their deeds are exposed. But Peter says, knock it off. Don't join them in that kind of living and lifestyle any longer. You are to be set apart as God's children for his purposes and for his kingdom. Is there sin in your life? Are you continuing down old patterns that God saved you from? Why? God says to confess those things to repent of those things, and to turn to live a life of obedience and faith in the one who saved you. John 15, Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to this world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to this world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. 1 Peter 4, 5. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Remember, God is a God of justice. People will have to stand before God. And give an account. Listen to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20 verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which was, is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. You think God's keeping track of your life? Yep. We all have a, something written in the books about our life. And I guarantee you that when we offend and sin against the living God, that's written down in one of those books. We are judged for the things we do in this life, the choices that we make. But listen to this. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, verse 15, was thrown into the lake of fire. That's reality. That's truth. I know it's not popular, but that's what the Bible teaches. And I am here to, to be consistent 
with what God says to do, which is to speak truth. And the truth is that if your name's not found written in the book of life, you are going to be separated from God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever in a place of torment, a place of suffering, a place where you have to pay the price that sin demands because the devil has accused you and you're not covered by the blood. Let our name be found in the book of life on that day, amen? How is your name found in the book of life? By trusting Jesus who gives us life. By asking him to come into your life, into your heart, and take residence right here by faith and trust in what he's done on that cross. Your name will be written in the book of life. And what's interesting is every one of those things that's written in the other books, when Satan goes, see, you should judge them for that. See, they've broken your law here. See, they messed up there. God's going to go, hold on, let's check the book of life. Oh, look, their name's right there, and that means they're covered. Not one of those things is on their record anymore that all went to Christ, and he paid the price their sin demanded. They're covered by the blood of their Savior, Jesus. Amen? Won't that be an amazing day? Will we not bow at the feet of Jesus on that day in great thanksgiving and praise? So shouldn't we be doing it today? Amen. The last verse, verse 6 of our text. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead. That word dead is the same word that's used here in Revelation where it says the dead appeared before the throne in heaven. Who are the dead? The dead are the dead. Anyone who's died since the beginning of creation. That's who he is referring to. So the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged by men in the fleshly realm, they might live by God in the spiritual realm. What is being said? What is being said is not that they are preached the gospel after death, but while they were living, the gospel was shared with them. Whether it was in the Old Testament, Noah, it says, was a preacher of righteousness. He preached for a hundred years to a group of people who mocked him, who ridiculed him, who said, you're a nut. You're building an ark and it's never even rained. What's wrong with you? Talking about a flood and destruction from a God? There's no God. And then it says in the Bible, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the second coming of the Son of Man. We live in those days. But he was faithful to preach. It says the Spirit of Christ was in Noah and the other prophets, preaching to them, giving them a message of hope and good news even in the old days. And some believed. Read Hebrews chapter 11. It talks about all of these men of faith and women of faith who believed what they heard. And it was credited to them. Their faith was credited to them as righteous or right standing before God because they were looking ahead to the Messiah who would give his life for their sins. They are the ones that ended up in Abraham's bosom. They're the ones that Jesus came down, made a proclamation, and said, you're free. Come with me. We're going to heaven. Nothing can hold you in this grave any longer. The Bible is very clear that it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. It doesn't say it's appointed unto man once to die. Then you get a second chance. Then Jesus comes and preaches to you again. And then if that doesn't work, you can work off your sin. No, the Bible's very clear. 
We have this lifetime to make the choice regarding Jesus. And that's why it's so important that people hear about Jesus. That's why the gospel needs to be preached around the world. If the church won't do it, God will do it through another means. But let's not do that to God. I can go on, I'm out of time, but I know even in places where missionaries arrived, there were people who had visions from God ahead of time about a son dying on the cross for their sin. Can God do it? He can do it. But he wants to use his church to be faithful to go and be his ambassadors around the world with the gospel. Number five, he spread hope beyond the grave. There's hope beyond the grave. Jesus has a driven determination to bring mankind hope. Why? Why? Because he knows people need hope. He knows it. Do we need hope? We need hope. We're called to be voices of hope in our world. Is it our determined desire to spread the good news of what Jesus has done to those who desperately need to hear this message of hope? Are we faithful ambassadors for Jesus? Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And we're going to be responding in just a moment in communion. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your love. I thank you that you pursued peace, and I thank you that you pictured hope. God, we can, we can do the WWJD thing. We can, we can try and think through how would you respond in any given situation or circumstance. Only when we know what you've already done and the example that you set for us to follow. God, thank you for your words this morning in, your, in, your, in this text of Peter. God, I thank you that you've left for us an example to follow. I thank you that you suffered for righteousness' sake. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Thank you for your your amazing love. Thank you for the cross. God, we, we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.